Welcome, Ryan Fisher. Thanks for having me. Hey, and this is Ryan Fisher. He's a realtor in the Valrico area. And um, we're going to get into his life story and get some advice moving to Florida and uh, all kinds of stuff. You know, this is the Florida Housing Hour podcast. And I always like to say there's no format. There's no cage that we're in. So we just get here and we talk. It's perfect. And we chat and we go back and forth and talk about, you know, whatever. So we're here to do it. We try to keep it real estate related and Florida related. But um, who knows? You know, things might things might go off. So yep. we'll see. So my first question, you know, who who is Ryan and, and what does he do? Where is he coming from? So I grew up in Buffalo, New York, um, small town, Elma, New York, went to Iroquois High School, went to Canisius College, which is a smaller school in the city of Buffalo, um, had a few jobs after college, and then decided that after I moved to the tri-state area um, that I wanted to try and pursue a career in law enforcement. So I uh, applied to New York State Police, and then I applied to the Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office down here in Tampa. Um, my application ended up coming through faster um, for Hillsborough County. So I ended up coming down here, starting training. And then after being down here for about four months, the application for New York came through. Um, so I had the decision if I was going to stay down here and continue or head back. And I decided that I was going to stay in Tampa. Um, so I've been down here now almost seven years. Um, been a deputy sheriff with the sheriff's office, started real estate probably two and a half years ago now. Um, had my license up in New York as well, but ended up moving down here before I could even do my first sale up in New York. Um, it's just always been an interest, so I'm glad that I was able to take the step down here and, and get involved. Nice. So Buffalo to New York, another New York transplant. Correct. So we, we see a lot of you guys here in uh, in Florida. So that's you you uh, you were here before the the rush, you know, we call it the rush after COVID when everybody kind of flooded here. So I was here at a time when I, when I was a new deputy, I was working at the tax collector's office. So when you're at the tax collector's office, you see firsthand yeah. all of the transplants coming in yeah. because you're sitting next to um, the queue and all of these people are coming up and talking to the, the admin at the front desk and like, I um, need to change an out-of-state license. And the amount of times that you hear that in one day <laughs> is... Um, it's pretty frequent. So you yeah. start, it starts to add up. And then as it got closer and closer and COVID passed, you started to see a lot more people moving down. Um, you know, people being stuck in the house and it was a, it was pretty eye opening. Yeah. It's, I mean, you can feel it here, living here. You can feel the, the population surge for sure. It feels like snowbirds came down and never went home, mm -hmm. but it's been like that for, you know, two or three years. Yeah. Now. Yeah. That's great. So did you work at one Tax collector, or did you rotate through different ones? There was one that I worked at. It was like a small off-duty job, and mm -hmm. it was up off of MLK, just a small. They just did license transfers, mm -hmm. so no vehicle, um, you know, no, t no title transfers or anything yeah. like that. The last time I went to the Plant City location over off of Sydney Road, and that place is a like a – that's huge. place is huge. It, it does everything. It's got all the state – it taxes and DMV and like everything. That's the there. one that they just redid, right? Mm -hmm. Or yeah. built. I think it's, I think they, or just, yeah, built they just built it. it. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah. It's it was a, in a different a part of town room. and they, they went over to that County land and 
what it is. So I, I think uh, we try to keep that one a secret because everybody wants to get an appointment faster. And the first place they go is Plant City because it's not as busy and it's big. Well, it's so, hidden off of Sydney Road, too. Yeah, which it's in makes a weird it spot. A, which really makes it a little bit harder to find, but... Try going to Falconburg Road to South MLK mm-hmm. any time of the day and yeah. forget about it. It's terrible. I went there yeah. one time. I don't, I'm, I'll try not to ever have to go back. You know, I try not to have to go there at all unless you got business there or something. Yeah. I, I had a motorcycle I had to transfer away on when I sold it and get the title right. I had to get the title right first before I could sell it and then yep. get it sold. So nothing I could do online. I had to do it all in person. So that's cool. So you... That's that's a pretty big decision, right? To pick New York versus Florida as a to start a career. So I actually decided to. So I bought a house when I was twenty four in Buffalo, and I stayed there um, with my girlfriend, my now wife, for probably fourteen months, twelve months. Um, I got a job offer to go out to New Jersey. It was a year contract that I signed, so I went out. Um, I absolutely hated New Jersey just the location that I was in. Um, I was constantly traveling and I just wanted to settle down somewhere. And I know that, you know, long-term I told her not to come out to New Jersey because I didn't see myself staying out there. So Mm -hmm. I said, just wait for the next place that I decide to go and let's see if it's feasible for you to, to start your career, transfer your career there. Um, So Florida was much more appealing and then it just, it all worked out. She got a transfer for work and, um, we ended up, she moved down when she first moved down here, we were in an apartment and then for zoning for work, I wanted to get into a specific area. So I went and bought a house in two days, basically looking at it at night with a flashlight. <laughs> it's a ridiculous story. Looking back, it really worked out for us. Honestly, um, we lived there for probably a year and a half. Um, I ended up working night shift in Valrico for a few years found the next neighborhood that I wanted to move to. Um, so I ended up buying a home in 2019 that was a thousand square feet bigger than that one um, with a pool. And we did some slight renovations, nothing serious. Mm-hmm. And then COVID hit and then we saw what the pricing did. Um, so just on that home alone, I think with the small renovations that we did and in COVID hitting, I think we made like 220,000 gross on it. Yeah. And then we were like, okay, we need to flip that money into something else. Mm -hmm. So then that's when we signed on a new build. And then that one, we just finished October of 2022. So we've just been getting settled in that one. They just started our pool dig this week. Um, So we're excited to see what this one, you know, turns out to be. Yeah. You know, by summertime. Right. So you, you, you bought the pool after, right? That's not a builder thing, right? You just put that in later. So some of the neighborhoods, they'll let you, um, sign like I know West Bay has a partnership with Tampa Bay pools um, some of the neighborhoods they'll let you just sign and they'll do them simultaneously the house and the pool um, when I bought this house it was at like peak business so mm-hmm. I noticed that they weren't giving the option the only house that had a pool that was being built was the model and they ended up selling that home you know only after a few months they didn't even make it a full model they didn't furnish it completely mm-hmm. so you start, you're starting to see the neighborhood transition. You're starting to see the pool signs. And I think there's at least five under construction at this point in a 35-home neighborhood. Wow. So That's cool. I'm anticipating even more in the summer. It's just, you know, people are trying to get settled. And yeah. And, you know, 
it's expensive right now. Pools are kind of through the roof when it comes to supplies. And we went through that whole issue with supply chain and, and materials and these huge problems of, of material cost overruns and just crazy amounts of money <laughs> involved. You know, so it's I never been cheap to put one in, but it's, it's even worse now. Obviously during COVID and the years after people were at home working from home. So, you know, having a pool was much more appealing. Mm-hmm. So I thought that once people started to return back to work, the prices would come down and they just haven't no. like just been, <laughs> been pricing them out and um, it just hasn't changed. Mm-hmm. So I've, I, I think what I'm realizing is people still have disposable income that they're spending because the pool builder is still busy and yeah. they don't seem to be hurting at all. And I, I keep know. seeing signs going up in, in the yard. So, right. Yeah. They're, um, they're going to, if you want one, you're going to get one. I always, I always told my wife that we wouldn't, we wouldn't put in a pool because there's so many houses in Florida that already have pools. And mm-hmm. so why go through the trouble of digging and building and, paying full retail price for one when you go and buy one already built. And then the last house we wound up with, we don't have a pool. <laughs> the one we had, we had a pool at our last house and loved it. And this first pool that we had together and like at our house that, that we lived in and we loved it. The kids loved it. And now I regret not having one because they love it, you know, but yeah. the why we, our, my son swims at the Y he's uh he's on their swim team there. So it's easy to get there. It's, five minutes from our house and it's super you know big pool slides the whole thing so we we still go to the water a lot but it's not just in the backyard and in the summertime it's so nice because you just float around and spend all day in there let it get dark go and get a shower and go to bed that's always what I liked about that (laughs) that's the truth so you always think that you don't use it that much which may be the case but the day that you don't have it Mm -hmm. is the day that you think you would use it yeah so then it's the mental game of well I think we need that back yeah um I think my wife was much quicker to pull the trigger on the pool part of it, but um, I think timing-wise and everything else, I mean, if I think if interest rates start to come back down just like everything, mm-hmm. you're going to start to see the the pool market, I think, pick back up as well. So I, yeah. wasn't, I wasn't opposed at this, at this point in getting it, and I don't want to create the mess later on, especially because right. you start doing landscaping and getting mm-hmm. everything the way you want it yeah. and then, then having you got the bobcats Bulldozers and, and stuff right. running through there, yeah. yeah. Exactly. And if you'll, you know, if you're going to be one of the first ones in the neighborhood to have one, is are you going to be one of the first? So the model has one. There's one person ahead of us in the progression. And then we were fortunate enough to have some great neighbors, the neighbor right next to us. You know, I spoke with him early on before he even moved in. He decided that he was going to do a pool through Tampa Bay Pools. So they're actually simultaneously digging both. Oh, I'm sure which, they love that. Which kind of helps out with access to our yard. Yeah. Um, I mean, as you know, the standoff room to the easements is they're pretty narrow, Mm -hmm. the distance in between these homes. So, yeah, that's cool. So that, but that's good that you're going to, that'll put you in a better position later. If you do want to do anything later, you know, cause you'll, you'll be established and everything is ready to go. That's it. I mean, we really, we did everything that we wanted to do for this home long-term, but, um, our ultimate goal is to get to the water on the intercoastal and, you know, either St. Peter, Tampa. Mm-hmm. So I think that having this house completely done, you know, and having it be appealing for another, you know, large family to come in there um, was just one of our goals to get it done so we can enjoy it, but then also have it to the point where it's marketable if we need to sell it. Did to make you a say, quick decision. did I miss who the builder was? 
Uh, West Bay Builder. It is West Bay. Okay. Yeah. I know you said I didn't know that was your builder. So they, um, what was your experience with a new build versus, because you, let me try to count here. You had your New York home, first one, and then yeah. a one in Valrico. And, and I then, did, I was in Diamond Hill um, in Valrico. So two in Valrico and then we, the West Bay. So we did the one in New York, one in Diamond Hill, the one in Citrus Wood across from Valrico Elementary. We sold okay. that one. And then we went to West Bay, which is down off of okay. Durant. So you've got three resales, right? That was, mm-hmm. This is your first new build. Yep. What's your experience as a as a buyer, not a realtor, but as a buyer on a new construction versus a resale? As a buyer walking through a home that's already established and you've already had, you know, one or multiple families live in it previously is you start to see everything that you want to change and you're excited, but it also becomes overwhelming because mm-hmm. you – you see all the work that you want to yeah. do when you first move in. Um, I think when you're at a new build stage, it's convenient because you're picking out all of the stuff that you want yourself, um, but you are paying a premium for that. Mm-hmm. Like there is, you know, when you actually see what's included on a new build, and I don't care what builder you're using. Yeah. Yeah. The but models are very different than the, the models are. It's model shock when you walk in there and you see the difference between um, what's included and what they've upgraded substantially different. Mm-hmm. So actually today um, I stopped home before I came in here. We have a company coming in to do like a board and batten wall on our upstairs living room. Um, and it's just crazy to see the upsell from the builders compared to finding a reputable contractor mm-hmm. and just paying their price compared to what the builder would have charged yeah. you. It's been like that forever, yeah. though. Even back in the early 2000s when, you know, things are going nuts, you could really get a good deal if you did your own trim carpentry contracting. You know, if you hired the guy to come and do crown yeah. molding versus having the the builder do it. And tons of, I've saw, that's where those, there's a little, uh, you know, a little market around that because they know that. Those trim carpenters and those specialty like improvements places, not like a general, you know, redo kitchens and stuff, but like your, your high end cosmetic stuff, that's their bread and butter. Like when these new houses go in, they make a killing because a lot of times they get that work from the builder. And then if they don't, they'll get it from the, from the buyer a year or two later. So what I've noticed is probably you're going to pay 30% more going through the builder, mm-hmm. having the exact same like trim work or something right. like that done after the fact. So you're basically paying for the convenience. Like last night I was moving furniture and getting the area prepped so that these yeah. guys could come into work yeah. where if I would have paid the builder initially, it would have been you just move into it. I just moved in. Mm-hmm. It would have been easier. But I think that there's an accountability aspect when you have another party come in. Cause I met this contractor today. He obviously wants a positive experience for, us, he wants a, a positive review. So I think they're much more driven to make sure that the quality's there. Mm-hmm. And plus, we're going to be there to inspect it at the end of the day before he gets payment. Right. Um, whereas with a you builder, know, you're like three times removed from the person doing the work. There's zero accountability right. going back to those contractors. Mm-hmm. So I think that they're less likely to rush and things tend to look a little bit better. Right. What was your experience? I've, I've always heard good things about West Bay in general. Did when buying the new house, did you have a lot of stuff that they had to come back and fix and things that you weren't happy with? Or what, what, what do you think about that? I would say that it, I wouldn't say it was an 
an excessive amount of stuff that they've came back. I'm still within the first year, so mm-hmm. they've been out a handful of times. Um, you know, I'm sure they're, they're going to have to come out a couple more times just for certain things that we just didn't anticipate, like wear and tear or breaking. Um, but I wouldn't say it was excessive. I think that there was some things that I was frustrated with during the process from a quality standpoint. Um, I don't know if that was due to the the pure volume of, you know, homes that they were building at the time and they're just trying to, you know, move through them pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, it just makes it tough when you, when you sign a contract, you're basically saying that you're not allowed in the home and you have, I want to say like seven or eight appointments where you're permitted to be on the grounds and you have to be with obviously a representative from the company. Right. So you're not able to get in there as much as you would like to actually hold some of the quality stuff accountable. Mm-hmm. So that's that's what I think was the most frustrating because I remember as a kid when my parents were building, we would walk through these homes once a day. I, I was just thinking that because my, my dad built a house 1992 maybe somewhere in there. And it was like a, you know, not not a mansion or anything. It was a normal 16, 17 square foot house, brand new. And yeah, we were in there every day. We, I've got a little wood block that we kept from it as my house. And uh, you can go see all the studs, all the electrical work, all the wiring. Um, I've known a lot of people that went and wired their house themselves for surround sound or Cat5 or whatever, internet connectivity, yeah. just to save money, you know, go if if all the walls and ceilings are open, then, you know, bring in some spools of cable and some ladders and go to work. And it was the same experience. I think, you know, for them, they could have pretty much done whatever they wanted, but um, with most of the builders down here, it's, you know, insurance liability and having mm-hmm. people in there. And I mean, let's be honest, they probably don't want you seeing every aspect. Of yeah. The I mean, process. I get it because I'm sure that there's, there's so many headaches that they can prevent because you never know who, who is going to be in there doing what? Correct. And what are they making an issue of if it's not an issue? You no, know, most most people don't see inside their walls ever, right? I mean, you most of you live in a house for twenty years, you hardly you might never have seen what's on the other side of that drywall, so yep. you don't really know what you're looking at. So that, I can see that being a huge frustration point for them. Cons constantly fighting people over that. I know that um, builders. I've always been a little apprehensive to build new just because I'm a big fan of mature neighborhoods and ones that have kind of grown and settled into their own and you kind of know which direction they've taken. You know, I've seen some neighborhoods that get built up quick or maybe it's the market, maybe it's location, who knows what it is, but they just kind of look like they've gone downhill quickly. And if you're one of the first ones in there, then everything, everybody around you is kind of your, they're like your equity, right? Because they're keeping their, it's up to them to keep everything up and moving. And I feel like I've always, that's such a risk to drop into a place and hope that it maintains and stays. I don't know if it's like that as much now as it was like back when, like in the early 2000s, but. No, it's a hundred percent an issue. Yeah. So. Still a concern, right? Still a concern. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There's we're probably at 90% of the neighborhoods moved in. I set up 35 homes. Um, and I would say like a good seven, eight families in there are concerned because they'll, 
they'll see like blatant disregard for some of the rules that the HOA has put in place. Mm-hmm. Um, people not maintaining their yards, their grass, you know, having commercial equipment in the neighborhood. Um, and it's a concern because it does, it lowers your property value. Mm-hmm. Like yeah, ultimately. Have, I mean, our neighborhood that we left in Citrus Wood, um, it just had a good feel when you drove yeah, through. Yeah, that's like, a very nice neighborhood. And what, what are those houses? 90s? 2000s? When was that built? They were all built right around 2005, 2006. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they've, some of them undergone more remodeling than the others, but right. for the most part, they're all very well maintained and, I, you know, people take pride in in their homes in there. So yeah. I feel like in this new neighborhood, the families are very alert and very aware and trying to make sure that, you know, the homes are representative of what you know, these people paid on mm-hmm. these new builds. Yeah, that it gets that that level of, like, seasoning, you know, that, that comes along with a with an established neighborhood. You have trees in your neighborhood? We do. That's another <laughs> thing that's, like, actively being talked about. So there's oaks all planted in the front. We all know what happens with oaks after so many years and sidewalks. So they're young oaks? Young yeah. oaks, but they're growing quick. So everyone's already talking about what trees can be substituted to get something that's less invasive and mm-hmm. keeps the neighborhood looking better longer so mm-hmm. we'll see what everyone's trying to make it a collective vote i don't know if we'll get 100 percent cooperation are you on the board i'm not we haven't even established a board yet Yeah, they haven't turned it over they haven't completely turned it over are you going to be on the board <laughs> i'm not sure i'm undecided <laughs> yeah. i mean i would i would like to have i guess i'd like to have some say in it just to make sure that we're you know looking out for the values and making sure that you know where everybody signed is the direction that these these houses are going in. Yeah. So. Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's I think it's valuable, especially as an as a realtor. You know, it's good to be in your community and know the neighbors and know the people. That's a great way to to network, really. Hundred percent. You, know, you yeah. might not need to be the the one with a gavel, but at least yeah. you can do something to to help coordinate or organize. And I don't think that people understand like the the appearance and what goes through minds when you drive through a neighborhood, like you're a realtor and you actually drive through a neighborhood and you hear the feedback mm-hmm. actively yeah. and what people are looking for and then you drive through your own neighborhood and what pe- some people may not think is a big deal it is a big deal mm-hmm. um, I see both sides of it you know I who are you to tell me I can't park my my electric my electrician van in the driveway correct you know this is my house I paid god knows how much six hundred thousand dollars for this house I'm going to park my my means of income in my driveway. You tough luck, right? But at the same time, you don't want somebody pulling in, you know, a semi trailer and mm-hmm. dropping off a 53 foot trailer somewhere in the neighborhood and letting that sit there for months or weeks at a time. And I always see both sides. We had a my last house was sometimes the HOA would get a little petty. You know, and I think there's a there's a there's definitely a balance with HOAs. You know, if you can keep things mostly good when they start literally counting the number of bushes in your yard. Yes, that's that's pushing it a little bit. And uh, but I like it when they they keep up with paint jobs and they keep up with with disgusting driveways like, you know, clean it up. Let's make it look good. We're all here. We all pitched in and we want to make it look nice. That's the reason that you signed up for Angeway ultimately, because mm-hmm. yeah. you could have went and picked another city with, you know, an acre and a half and no management and yep. done whatever you wanted out there, but you chose to go into an HOA right. where there's an expectation of appearance. Yeah. And at the end of the day, it does, it benefits everybody. 
you know, yep. the ones I, I, I see people's points, you know, I've, I've been on both sides of it. I think the biggest little, the biggest little complaint that I had or that they had against me was they could see our trash cans <laughs> and that was a big no, no for them. And this neighborhood wasn't like a, you know, like a neighborhood, like celebration in Orlando, Kissimmee, you know, everything is prim and proper and like, looks like Disney. This neighborhood wasn't like that. We're talking about Walden Lake in Plant City. Yeah. And it was just our trash cans were on the side of the house, around the side, like halfway down the house before you got to the fence in the backyard. And technically, you're supposed to have them obscured by bushes. So we had to plant a hedge and make a little little nook for our trash cans to go in. (laughs) And we'd get pictures, I guess, some some lady on the HOA would either drive around or walk around and snap pictures all the time. And all the neighbors had their own picture of either a dead bush or a trash can that's visible. (laughs) But it was a mature neighborhood. It was, those houses were built in like 99 and, you know, we got the big, huge trees, oak trees. And, you know, it's one of those neighborhoods that's not a square, you know, it's got winding roads through it and cul-de-sacs and yep. you know everything's laid out with pie-shaped lots and things like that so it's a not one of these super hoas on steroids yeah so what were you doing when you bought your first house what were you doing before you got in law enforcement so the house up in buffalo mm-hmm. uh, i was doing loss prevention then so for retailers just mm-hmm. like the I think of the easiest way to describe it. Like a, like a Walmart cop. It was, kind of. <laughs> it depends on what level you're at. So at first you start off as like catching people stealing in the stores and then mm-hmm. it becomes more of like a, a higher level, like a strategy, thing. like a strategy thing. Yeah. There's obviously a, a theft prevention aspect of it, but mm-hmm. it became more of like a logistical accountability for what, you know, what shipments coming in, procedures what charge back and, procedures, yeah, exactly. things like that. Yeah. I, exactly. I used to, my first couple jobs were retail and, uh, I worked at Kmart and Eckerd drugs. Okay. So you're and, familiar with yeah. how it all works. And we had lost prison people that were, we'd have secret shoppers, you know, that would sneak around and no, the employees wouldn't even know who they are. Yeah. And then you'd have like the guy that came in and reviewed everything and he had the whole district. So he would pop in once a month or something like that and bring in best practices and things to look out for. And they would target. We had a bunch of uh, Disney VHS tape thieves at one point. And that this, um, you know, I'm dating myself, but we were back to, what was this? About two ninety nine, ninety nine two thousand. 99, 2000. I was I graduated high school in 99. So I was, I was right about there about that time. And uh, there was this ring of women that would come in in a group, in a big group, and they just kind of graze around the store, you know, just kind of lazily walk around, and they'd wind up finding any of the Disney VHS tapes and popping them open and taking the the cassette tape out of them. Yep. <laughs> and that was like, of all things, like you're you're taking Disney tapes. I guess that's crazy. And, and like today's day and age, like everything is right here. You know, yeah. Anything you want is on your computer. And back then. You know, you had a collection of VHS tapes for your kids. And I, and the, what they were doing is taking them to uh, flea markets and selling them. And our loss prevention guy would come in and, like, give us pictures and tell us what to do and if we ever suspected that. And it was it was a riot. 
So I, for like entry level, like just catching people shoplifting in the store, I worked for Abercrombie and Fitch and then I went to JCPenney's as an area manager. So I had a couple stores there. And then my last job out in New Jersey, I was a regional. So then that's when it's, you're only getting to these stores once every six weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, so it just completely changes. Like they're at the regional level, you have pretty much no interest in like the shoplifting piece right. of it. It's, one, it's all about managing logistics yeah. and like the bigger um, tracking picture of shipments. It. Correct. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. That, what do you think about these? Have you seen these videos of uh, these ransacked Walmarts and, and the way Target looks like a jail now. There's some cities where they've every, every single thing in the in the aisles are locked behind glass. What what is how what are we gonna do about that? What are they gonna do about that? I mean, these people are skilled. It's their job. Yeah. So if you don't have the means to prevent it, you're you're ultimately gonna have to make the investments into these this theft prevention equipment um, because. Personnel is expensive mm-hmm. when you start to look at salaries, benefits, and keeping these people staffed in the stores at all times. And, and the risk of it, too. And the, the risk of employees getting hurt. Mm-hmm. Um, and then what if they're on lunch and you get hit? So mm-hmm. then you had all of this personnel in place, but they were on lunch. Yeah. So it's I guess if you have these theft prevention devices, you have a better shot. But obviously, it's much more expensive to implement well, that store-wide and, and from I the, think from the that jump. I don't want to go to, I don't want to go there and shop. Like if I have to go track down an employee to unlock, a, it's the hard enough. The optics are bad and it's inconvenient. Yeah, really. Like it's hard enough to get a, a PlayStation game at Target, like in where we live. And I don't even, yeah. I don't know if they've, if any of our targets have had to go to those, those extremes. Um, but a lot of these retailers are pulling out of bigger cities because they can't, they can't operate at a loss like that. They're 100%. just getting overrun. And, uh, you know, it's bad enough to have to get like razor blades unlocked or something like that. And then I just feel like that's going to more and more and more push to online orders and Amazon and pickups and stuff like that. Cause you, people go to target to kind of hang out and shop and look and find what they like and what they want, you know? And if everything is locked away and nothing is out for display and I don't see anybody hanging out there anymore. Like you know? when I was doing that, I mean, they called it door hits. So if you worked at like a higher end store, you know, we'll say, you know, Dillard's or Nordstrom's or a store like that, that's going to have higher end jackets and yeah. shoes, boots near the doors. You would have three or four people come in, two of which would be distraction, two of which would be actually be removing the goods from the store. And then they take off in a car that's got a covered up tag. And you just lost between three and five thousand mm-hmm. dollars on one hit, and it, they were in and out of your store in under two minutes. It's crazy! It's wild. They're professionals about that stuff. And then when you come back, if you're not at one of the stores, or you know, one of the store managers calls you and you review it, and you see how much was actually removed, it's hard to. You can't even be frustrated with the employees not being there because I mean, they were in and out in a minute and a half. Yeah. Well, what are you going to do? So there's nothing you can do about it. Yeah, it's crazy. So, did you did do you have a family history law enforcement? No family history of law nope. enforcement. Okay. Nope. So. Yeah, just the first one, and now uh, my cousin's actually a cop up in a town just outside of where I grew up. Mm-hmm. So um, I guess she's the the second family, but a lot of my friends up there are law enforcement. Yeah. Whether they're town cops or troopers or sheriffs up there. So. Tell me the year again that you started at the sheriff's office. Started in the academy in 2016. 16, and then. 
um, started on the street in 2017. Okay. All right. What's that like? I mean, it's, I, it's, it's I'm asking you that because I'm not a law enforcement professional, but like what, that's, that's a broad question, but I can only imagine what it's like, but what do you, what's, what's your take on that job? It's changed and evolved a lot. Um, I think that it's becoming tougher and tougher for law enforcement out there to really make an impact. I think that a lot of the law enforcement is just being strapped down for what they can actually do. And I understand there's policies and procedures that you have to kind of keep people in to make sure that there's, you know, not crazy lawsuits or, um, you know, just rogue cops in general. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a lot going on. And obviously the economy that we have right now is, you know, inflation's at one of the highest it's been in a while. So people have to get money and make money some other ways. And when you're law enforcement at night, you see the ways that they're doing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You see the, the, you know, when it comes to choosing, <laughs> choosing to break the law to feed your family, when it gets to that point, you know, we're looking at some societal issues there. Yeah. You know, it's not just the, the scumbag who found an easy way to make money or a quick way to make money. You know, now you're talking about they are trying to provide and that it's tough, you know. I think one rough. of the, and I'm speaking for this area in general, I feel like the social media is giving these young kids who proclaim to be aspiring gang members the platform to spread their message and I guess beef with other gangs in the area, which ultimately causes excessive gun violence where I don't think that when I first came down here, that that was as much of an issue. Mm -hmm. Like, and obviously there's gangs everywhere and they're all, you know, active, but especially now with the social media and how they're sending their messages, it's just, I feel like it's constant. Yeah. It's like a, Everything's so instant, you know, it's just so if you want to put the message out, it can go out in a heartbeat. And Correct. if you and if you're all your homies or whatever following you, then everybody sees it immediately. And now you're you're contained. I can just imagine like rolling up to a scene and your contained incident is now spread across the county, you know, to everybody who was on Snapchat, yeah, Instagram, who was seeing that here. Yeah. And so now, you know, you, 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 you commit a crime and now you got to get away, but now like you commit a crime and all your friends are there to help you, help you with yeah. it. I can, that's crazy. You know, that's, I've luckily never had a, a run in like that. My biggest run in have been traffic citations. So. I feel like the traffic citations part of it is it's dwindling. Like, you know, there's much bigger focus and, mm-hmm. um, there's other concerns that these deputies have out on the street, whether yeah. it's day shift or night shift. Mm-hmm. Um, What's up with those um, Ford trucks pulling people over? <laughs> uh, just like co- plane trucks? Yeah. Yeah. Like completely plain. There's a lot of, I mean, the the vehicle diversity is, I mean, there's there's quite a few. Yeah, there's a lot. Yeah, yeah I, a lot. I get out because I, I go up and down 60 every day. And uh, some days you'll see like, four or five different makes and models of vehicles and not one indicator that it's an official vehicle. You know, it's just like, it looks like any off the lot vehicle. 
And yep. uh, then you see a fully uniformed deputy getting out of it. And you're like, oh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, from a law enforcement standpoint, there's a lot of great equipment that the county has here. There's mm-hmm. without a doubt. Um, you know, I tell people that ask about the job. I said, if you're going to be a cop in this area, like Hillsborough is where you would go. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, when it comes to the resources, the equipment, the vehicles, I mean, yeah. you have, you have brand new deputies who haven't even completed their probation period getting brand new vehicles. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I understand why it's happening. I mean, it's a draw to, to be a deputy and come out and get yeah. a brand new vehicle. Sure. Or like a recruiting um, tool. It is. It is a recruitment tool. Mm-hmm. And then the, uh, I don't know where that, where, where the sheriff's office ranks in, I, I don't even, uh, do you know this? Like, where do they rank in Florida? I guess Marlin Miami-Dade's probably like the biggest sheriff's office. Is Hillsborough pretty far up there though? I think that we're, I want to say top 10 in the country. Yeah, I've heard something size. like that before. Like it's a very well-funded and large operation. I mean, the the tax base is definitely there when you look at all of the pools that they're pulling from. Mm-hmm. I mean, you have the port, the airport, the stadiums. I mean, there's there's quite a few different um, sources. But, yeah, I, I would say that size-wise and funding and all the pieces are definitely there. I saw something about New York's, the NYPD, and their size, and it was like it rivaled many countries' armies and <laughs> militaries just because of the sheer volume and, like, the the airships and planes and helicopters and stuff that they have are like many countries don't even have that level of equipment. Yes. It's crazy. Yeah. There's definitely, like I said, there's no shortage of, of access and equipment. I mean, I think they have two or three helicopters, a plane and, um, it definitely helps, especially night shift, those yeah, guys out there. Absolutely. When you need that. From a that safety stuff, perspective and yeah, call it in. Locating missing people and mm-hmm. um, it's helpful. Are they using drones any? Are they doing that much? There are deputies that are certified to use drones. Yeah. Yeah. That seems I like I feel like the aviation gets used significantly more, but mm-hmm. yeah, they're definitely used. Yeah. That seems like it'd be a super helpful thing to have if you're looking for people. You know, I think I saw a video of somebody that was lost in the woods and they found him with a drone, like a, like a FLIR drone. They were able to pinpoint it. I was, thought that was pretty awesome. We've had several, I think, stories lately where they've had people lost. I think most recently up, I think, Fenona Sassa Lake up there. Mm-hmm. They located somebody in the water up there. Wow. It's like a deputy on a boat and then the aviation helped out. So there's definitely a lot of big wind stories. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's great. That's cool. That's a... Um, it's a harrowing job to have. That's a we what, thank you for doing it. You know, we, I appreciate our law enforcement, and I think that's a you know I got some, some friends in the corrections and um, on the road, and you know I've known tons of people over the years that have done it. So. Yeah, it's a it's been a great experience. I think I've learned so much, and at times it's humbling. Mm-hmm. Um, but the perspective that you get from from doing that, it's incredible. I feel like you know some of the agencies up north. You know, you just get caught up in the ticket writing routine. But when you come down here, I mean, you're truly full service and you see every type of call frequently. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you're 12-hour shifts and you're busy constantly. So yeah. it's a it's a good perspective. Um, I mean, you have some agencies up there that funding-wise, you know, they're riding two-man and that's not by choice of riding two-man cars. It's because they don't have enough cars to leave the district for the mm-hmm. day. 
Mm. So you'll have officers or deputies standing by in the districts writing reports because they're so short on cars that they can't make it out. Wow. Um, so yeah, that must make a huge difference being that like that. So how do you think the skill set that you've developed in law enforcement with dealing with all walks of life, you know, from command and from, you know, the people that you're stuffing in the back of a car, how do you think those, those interactions and experience and the, and kind of the skill set that you've built up, how do you think that translates into real estate? I think for real estate, it, you know, it helped me personally at first is figuring out where I wanted to live because you're out there patrolling these neighborhoods at night and, you know, you have great perspective on, you know, where's a great place to settle down. Um, so I think that's probably the, you know, the biggest. And then once you start getting into like the actual, I guess, job itself, like writing police reports and you're almost annoyingly specific with the facts in a police report where Mm -hmm. when you find yourself writing a real estate contract and doing addendums, um, I think it comes much easier just because if it's not in the addendum, it didn't happen. And it's kind of the same with the police report. So I think that's been extremely beneficial. Um, just tying up all loose ends and making sure that everything's communicated. I've heard some realtors uh, complain about like paperwork in real estate. And I'm like, hey, it's not that bad. It's not There's that not bad. that many documents you have to go through. And coming from that background, I mean, you know. like I've written more, more paper in one night as a deputy than I have like all paperwork combined for one transaction. Yeah. Like all admin work combined. Yeah. So I I'm, believe it. Now, on when you're talking about paperwork, is it is there still a lot of handwritten or is it mostly electronic? We call it paper, but yeah, it's all computer based. Yeah, yeah. So from the time you get there, everything that you're doing is on the computer. Mm-hmm. Um, certain calls require just clearance, and then some require you know full reports, narrative, and narrative, all that stuff that happens. Narrative interview, pictures, yeah. everything. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. So yeah, that's. So having a computer nearby is not, you're not a stranger to that. <laughs> no. Yeah, it's constant. Yeah, that's what it's like in the real estate world. I mean, when I was an agent back in 2004 to like six, computers were a thing, but they weren't completely integrated yet. So paper contracts were still very, very common and faxing and, you know, still super common. And I did so many on the hoods and trunks of, cars, you know, outside in the driveway of a house that I showed, you know, we just yank out a blank contract right there and write it up, fill it in and offer in, you know, there was a project that I was working on this year. And I think out of all the deals I've done, there's only been like one or two that have wanted to do like signed paper contracts and addendums. Mm -hmm. And I just had one a couple months ago and (laughs) It's insane. It's like two or three days to get an addendum back when I know when, when you DigiSign or whatever other yeah whatever e-sign so- thing whatever right. e-sign software that you have. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's instantaneous, and you can even. I mean, everybody gets a copy instantly, mm-hmm. so it just helps speed things up. But it's it's painful. I hope that everyone's going to be integrating soon. And I think the the issues with you know not like a chain of custody, but just making sure that everything's done and timestamped. Yeah. I mean, fraud is a real thing. Correct. Like we need to be careful about things, these things and those, uh, you know, digital certificates and the timestamps and the, the tracking that is very important. You know, you don't want somebody good because you, 
you watch? You ever watched? Uh, what's that show? I think it's called Dirty Money. You ever I have, and I've seen it advertised, but I haven't yeah, actually. I think it's watched on Netflix. It. And there was one where this guy, uh, this company, they were they were into mortgage fraud, and he would take. He had a like one of those X-ray um, things, like the light boards. He had one of those. He had like a whole drawer full of exacto knives and tape and copy machines and he was yep. just like a professional uh, document forger and he would get these things in their company was doing loans he would take the documents go home with them slice them up put in the numbers do everything recopy them get it all in and then put it back in the file and i mean he went to prison over it but that's the one they caught you know who else <laughs> who else was Ooh, out there that, that they don't know about and I think DocuSign and, and e-signs and stuff, I think that probably solved some problems and it might have also created some problems, you know, at the same yeah. time, kind of a, a twofold. But it's so much. I mean, the paper trail you can't beat. Yeah. So when you see the timestamps and everything else, it's right. It's very cut and dry as to what time stuff was executed at. And then you got um, IP logging about where it was and who did it. And like, well, no, this was signed by the computer that sent it. What's that about? Like, why didn't you... Why didn't it go to another computer to be signed? Then you have some realtors who you sense are anti-technology and there's always something wrong with the computer or the software and 99.9% mm -hmm. .9 of the time it's user error. Yeah, absolutely. I remember the times, luckily I didn't have to work in these times, but you know, before you have to, if you're doing a loan for somebody, it requires a FedExed out loan disclosure package with stickies all over it and highlighted sign here 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 put the yep. little 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 tab stickies on the side of it and just the amount of money that it costs to print all that stuff off and then to fedex it back and forth and then who knows if something's wrong then you got to do it again and then you fix it and send it yep. back in and out and it's just everybody has gotten used to this now mentality which is great you know that's i'm happy with that but it's just more of the same like with the you know, so we we were talking about earlier today. We were talking about uh, social media and attention spans, and just how everybody is bouncing from thing to thing to thing, any minute of the day. You have know, you, have you monitored what your like? I get the alerts on my watch. I think they come on Sundays or your phone. Yeah, mine comes on tell Sundays. You mm -hmm. How much time you spent on average on your phone daily? Mm -hmm. Yep. And I remember a couple of years ago, it would be like three hours that I would be on my phone in a day. And lately it's been like five and a half hours. Mm -hmm. So it just shows you increasingly how much more your phone is drawing you in. Yeah. And from like a realtor, realtor's perspective, that's, I mean, prop what safe to say about 70% of your work can be done like through the phone. Like when it comes to communicating, obviously and talking and emails and things like that. What you can do for work without it, without it. Yeah. When it comes right. to either making phone calls, text messages, social media, mm -hmm. contracts, I mean, anything. Yeah, it, it's all it's there. All, it's it all might there. be a total pain. I would much rather have a computer to be able to handle those documents and everything, but it's workable. Like there's apps and there's the, yeah. the, the capabilities there and people, I mean, they live on it. But what is that doing to people's attention though? I feel like it's just grinding people down. Nobody's <laughs> present. Nobody's <laughs> present anymore. No. It's crazy. This is about the only time, these podcasts are about the only time where I can just kind of take this and put it away and just completely ignore it. Yep. And I was even having to text one of the girls here earlier. She needed something. And uh, I still can't completely get away. Yeah. <laughs> it's the life.
So what is, um, so you talked about your, uh, how your skills translate into real estate. We talked about paperwork. What do you think about people skills? And has it, has this, has this law enforcement career taught you how to, or maybe sharpened how to interface with people? Cause I feel like a realtor needs to be almost, almost a chameleon to be able to kind of interface with whoever instead of one, this is all you're ever going to get from me type personality. What do you think about that? I think that's, I think it's exposed, um, I guess, outlooks into different cultures, expectations. And, um, I mean, obviously you're talking to people all day long is law enforcement, but, um, I would say just giving you perspective on, you know, people from different areas and, um, I don't know. It's, I've always, I've heard before that when you interact with paramedics, first responders, law enforcement, that in many, many, many cases, that's like some of the worst days of these people's lives, right? Correct. When you get to them and you have to do whatever it is, help, service, prevention, crime, whatever, that somebody's not having the best day of their lives, right? Correct. And and that's... That's got to be, I would imagine that there's some sort of, even if it's not a conscious empathy, it's more of, I'm sure that I feel like I, I would have empathy for that and just understand that, you know, these people are not in their normal frame of mind at yes. the moment. And, you know, you could, one could say that real estate might be a little similar to that. No, nowhere near comparing it to that, but people are in a, a transition point in their lives. You know, unless they just buy a house every year and upgrade and flip and move, unless you're that kind of person. But, you know, when you're talking about a family who is going to uproot from another state or county or across town or move up or whatever, those are really big decisions, especially with, with children. Yeah. Because you have children? I don't. No children? Okay. So I my, I got a 10. Well, he's about to be 10. I'm aging him. He's 10 next week. Uh, 10 and 4. And... Those decisions are a lot heavier than they would be they, that they used to be. Mm-hmm. When I was single or when we didn't have kids, whatever. You know, I'd crisscross the county, move here, I'd buy a house over here, move here. Wasn't that big of a deal. But now, you know, a lot of consideration goes into well, what are my kids gonna do? How how am I doing? How am I making this decision for my kids? Are they gonna have a good place to be in? Are they gonna be in good a good school zone? Are they gonna have friends? Are they gonna be close enough to activities and things like that? And I can, you know, people relocating here or just whatever move, I think that it takes, you should never lose sight of the fact that they're in such a big life change and it's a really big deal to drop half a million dollars on a house or $200,000. It doesn't matter. Whatever the price range is, it's a big deal. And, you know, it sounds cliche, but a lot of people say that, you know, the this home purchase is going to be the biggest purchase that you ever make in Looking back, it in my case it is. I've never bought anything more expensive than my house, you know. Mm. And uh, being in the industry, it's just another day for me. You know, I'm kind of running through. But even during that transition in my time, I feel those emotions. You know, I feel those like, is this the right move? Am I getting into the right thing? You know, this is, and then in the middle of a contract, 
is the offer accepted? What are they saying? Have you heard back? You know, that yeah. everybody on pins and needles at that time. So I guess you could draw some comparisons to that. Nowhere near as, uh, you know, life and death in a lot of cases, but people aren't their normal selves, I think, during this whole process. Correct. I think the biggest challenges for me have been, you know, working in an area that you live so close and you try and safeguard your social media Mm -hmm. and you're not, you know, very out there. Um, Whereas obviously in today's day and age, you're, you want to be present with your social media, your marketing. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that forcing myself to get out there hasn't been nowhere near where it should be. Um, And then the second piece of it is when you're out there as a deputy, you're busy all the time. And I feel like some of these interactions with the public become so transactional. Um, You almost become monotone because you're just trying to snap through it and get Mm -hmm. to the next one. Right. Um, We're here in real estate, you know, people are hiring you, like you as a person. Um, They expect to have some personality, somebody that's interacting with them. Mm -hmm. Um, So I, it's almost like you got to remind yourself like setting change um, and just make sure that you're yourself out there and you're not dealing, you know, in a law enforcement capacity out there. Mm-hmm. So I think those are the two biggest things for me that I've tried to keep in mind. Yeah. My wife, um, she was a NICU nurse for many years and she just recently left to, to be home with the kids, but it was, there was definitely a switch that flipped from the time that she got ready to go to work and put in her 12, 13 hour day to when she got home and flipped back into, you know, mom and wife mode because she's dealing with literally with life and death situations to these little babies who have no. Your wife was a NICU nurse? Mm-hmm. Yep. So. St. Joe's. St. Joe's right up there in North Tampa? Mm-hmm. How long, how long was she up there for? Well, uh, she just stopped about a year ago. And then before that, she was there for, I don't know, eight, ten years, somewhere in there. So um, that time. my wife was pregnant last, uh, we found out last summer. And then two days after Christmas, I got a call when I was at work that she was having, and we knew she was having pains over the weekend. Um, she ended up going in and delivering our son at 23 weeks. Mm. So our son went into NICU at 23 weeks. Um, he made it two days and passed. So I developed a whole new respect for Sorry to hear that. the NICU nurses. Yeah. Um, they're, they're little, they're angels, aren't they? It's emotional. Yeah. It definitely is. Um, mm. I wonder, I wonder what, what month was that? That was December of 22. Yeah. It was right, at, right before the new year. So yeah, she was, she was gone. She quit it. She, she left in May of, uh, I'm sure she knows the doctors um, she, that we absolutely. had. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. I know she does. They yeah. were absolutely incredible up there. Yeah. They're, um, they're really, it's their special kind of nurse healthcare. Like I, I mean, obviously had exposure to hospitals and you have to, you know, go up there with certain people that you have throughout the shift. Mm-hmm. Um, but seeing, I guess, that level of, I guess, buy-in, I'll call it, from the staff up there and how mm-hmm. much they care was just incredible. Yeah. They're all born with it. It's like yeah. they're, that's that's who they are. So, yeah, she she transitioned to home. Our kids are, well, my daughter, she's four and a half, four, four and three quarters. She's about to be, when September is her birthday, she'll be five. And my son, when COVID hit, 
he didn't go back. So he, he was on eternal spring break. So when he left, we just, we kept him out for virtual for the next, for that following year. And then we transitioned to homeschool. So now my wife teaches both of them, um, full curriculum and everything. And I just felt like that was the right decision to like, uh, you know, get her away from her full-time job. And she only, she worked a modified part-time. So she was there like three shifts per pay period. So she'd do two one week and one the next. And so she was like six shifts a month is what it averaged out to. Yeah. But even still, that's a lot. And she was gone every weekend. She'd work Friday and Saturday and, or sometimes Saturday and Sunday. And it was, we barely got to see each other because, um, you know, she's not there you know, yeah. on the weekends. I, I work all week and then she comes home. So um, she transitioned to that and it's a, it's a challenge now, you know, it's, it's a huge challenge, but they're doing great and they've got, they're parts of all kinds of different groups. And like I, when I was a kid, homeschool was kind of like a, it wasn't a, you were an outcast as a homeschooler, but everybody was like, Oh, well, you're not going to know how to, how to make friends. You, you're not going to have to be able to socialize or anything like that. And I think that's, you couldn't be farther from the truth now because these kids are, they're seeing friends and people and, and groups like four days a week yep. and they're right. They're totally in the middle of it. So I think that's a, you know, it's, it's a new for us still. It's, I mean, she's not a, a veteran at it. She's only in the, what, this is her second year yeah. of doing it. So, so it's a lot. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> but that's, you can't, you can't really can't work and do that at the same time. No. There's just too much going Especially on. Especially not in NICU with the demanding hours. And, yeah. And yeah. that's, you know, that's not the kind of job that you can just hang up and walk away from, you know, it's like, oh. You know, okay, I just went and did my thing and I went home because, you know, she's she's got families that she she sees them every year. They have a, um, you know, like a Christmas gathering and the, the two nurses that were assigned are invited to come and, you know, partake in the family and kind of see things. And it's yeah, I guess I didn't understand until I was obviously in the middle of it was like when he was born, he had one on one care. So mm-hmm. that nurse stands bedside for 12 hours. Yeah, a primary. So you're, I mean, you want to know what happened over the last 12 hours. I mean, they can recite it, mm-hmm. you know, front to back. Yeah. Um, and then, I mean, they're people. So when I, what I mean when I say that is after he passed and we walked out of the room, I wanted to see kind of like what the, like what the feeling was in the room after. And I wa- made it look like I walked away, and then I walked back and looked in the room, and I saw the nurses hugging and crying, and yeah. like, that actually, like, it makes it feel ten times better. Mm-hmm. Um, that the passion that these people have for their career is, yeah. like, unmatched. yeah, they they're a special breed. I mean, I've met a lot of her friends, and they're all cut from the from the same cloth. Yep. You know, same thing. I'm, Sorry that happened to them. It's, yeah, it's... It's devastating. It's been tough, and obviously it's new for us. Yeah, um, yeah that, that is fresh. But like I said, I between my wife and I, I don't think we've had like more respect for a career than yeah. in that one. That's a tough one. Yeah. Well, I hate that you have to, to learn about it through that, you know? Yes. It's terrible. 
So all right, what what does what's your wife do? She works. She you know? is a financial. Uh, she's certified to be a financial advisor. She works for um, UBS. So she works on a large team down there. They do private wealth management. Mm-hmm. Um, so she's very busy. Is she remote work or is that an office? She's thing? in the office. Yeah, yeah. She's in the office. I would say ninety five percent of the time. Mm-hmm. Like if there's a circumstance that allows her, you know, if she's has an appointment to be yeah. to or something, then right. she'll kind work remote for the morning. But for the most part, she's there. Yeah. Um, I really think that's the way the world's going to get back to. It is. It's 100%. just going to, it's going to take some medicine for people to swallow to, to get over it. But kind of need you in the office, you know, <laughs> kind of need to be here doing work. So I, I think <laughs> that it goes both ways. So the team camaraderie that you get having everybody in the office, like you can't, you can't replicate that if you're working from home. Yeah. Um, but I also think that maybe one day a week where you allow employees to catch up on like a Friday and not drive their long commutes mm-hmm. um, definitely helps with, I guess, mental health. Yeah, and I mean, just life balance just, in general. Just catching up yeah. for the week. Having time to have appointments at your house or have somebody come through and fix something and you can be there to, to let them in while you work or whatever. Exactly. That's a huge, huge benefit. And again, it's one of these issues where I see both sides of it. You know, I see the benefits to being at home and, you know, I've always hear people say, well, if you leave me alone, I'll just do my work and I can do it at home as I can do it here. And yes, maybe, maybe you can. But when you spread that out over a thousand people, somebody is taking advantage of something and Correct. the the level of people that are there that are actually giving it their all all the time. I wonder what that percentage really is. You know? I don't think you're learning either. If you're at home, mm-hmm. you're, you're doing the same thing that you've done every day right. and checking the boxes, getting through your workload. I well, think if you're in the office, you're forced to not train, but you're, you're bouncing ideas off of others and mm-hmm. I think you're taking more out of each day. Yeah. And it, the the old saying is it's always, it's not what you know, it's who you know, mm-hmm. you know, and networking is a huge part of any job. doesn't matter what you do, any job, you know, skills, no skills. It's who you know, who can help me get here or who can help me clear a path to, to go here. Tell me about this. And you know, how many places have you seen where, a whole group of people, you know, the company shuts down and then all the people wind up at a different company because they all knew each other yep. and they all got each other in and, you know, moved around. So it, that is a big thing. And I know I'm an introvert by nature. Like I don't love being out and socializing and happy hours and parties. I yep. don't love it. I, I'll do it, but it's not my thing. And I could get very comfortable sitting at home, not ever talking to anybody, yeah. <laughs> just kind of working on my computer and my phone and just kind of living in my own world. But I think it's, uh, you know, it's healthy to be having social interaction and like being with people. Yeah, I think so. And when you have, I mean, if you had two employees, you had one working from home and you had one working in the office and then it came time for a promotion and it doesn't matter what the field is. Mm-hmm. I feel like when you're, when the optics are there and you're seeing this person in the office working and you've, you have this relationship professionally that we're, you yeah. know, you're bouncing ideas off, you're naturally going to be more comfortable and with And just them. the subconscious realization of seeing that person every day and picking up on their moods and their just who they are as a person. It's so much harder to cultivate and sustain a relationship virtually. Like during the whole COVID lockdowns and everything, um, 
I heavily resisted virtual stuff just because that's where everybody immediately pivoted to. And so, oh, we can't be in the office. Now we're on Zoom, you know, and it's I didn't just want to be another face on a Zoom screen. So I shied away from that a lot. And, it, you know, it wasn't a good thing because mm-hmm. I didn't a lot of that interaction was just missed. You know, I just didn't have it. And uh, but now I think it's found a happy medium. You know, people, everybody is used to Zoom. Everybody is used to teleconferencing. So you can use it sparringly, like when you need to use it. When it's effective, it's effective. But you're not forcing people to a a Zoom happy hour. I prefer much more to meet people in person myself. Yeah. I feel like you get so much more of a read. Mm -hmm. Um, I feel like you get just more genuine responses. Mm -hmm. um, I feel like the computer screen and the FaceTiming just becomes so professional um you just you just lose out on the yeah, personality there's something there's something missing and, and you just seem more fake when you're trying to be when you're trying to cultivate it you're trying to make something out of it you just seem like it just seems like you're trying too hard yeah you know? no i i 100 agree yeah when you became when you decided to become a licensed agent what made you what made you do that because you mentioned you had your license in buffalo right mm-hmm. And then is it because you bought a house? Is it because of that? Or is it because you saw something else there? I think I've had a lot of interest in it um, just in total. Like I love identifying the house or building the house and, you know, obviously the designing it, um, the decorating it, everything that goes along with it is something that I enjoy. Um, I think that, I mean, I haven't stayed in a home longer than, think two and a half years at this point so that's something that I think was hard for my wife to adjust to at first mm-hmm. um, and then I think that now I catch her looking at houses I think more <laughs> than I do which has been an adjustment did you move um, a lot as a as a kid or were you pretty and pretty planted at first we my parents did they the house that I was born into we lived for a few years um, then we moved two lots down they built another home that was bigger um, we lived there. Then they built another home and a development. Um, they couldn't get what they wanted for the house that we were living in, so they decided to forego on the one that they built. So the builder sold that one. Um, we stayed in the home that we were at for a couple of years longer. And then they moved one town over and built another home, and they've been in that home for a while now. Okay. Um, but in between, they've while being steadily in the home in Buffalo, they've also bought and sold a few properties in Florida here. So I wouldn't say that they've completely, you know, stopped buying and selling properties. It's mm-hmm. it's continued, but it's just been down here. So you didn't just, you weren't born into a house and lived there for, until you moved out. You, you had some Correct. moves. Correct. Yeah, yeah. We, we've had some moves. Yeah. I mean, all within 15 minutes of each other, right. but there's been, you know, multiple different houses. Okay. So you, you decided to get licensed. You knew law enforcement was a sure thing. You know, because yep. it's solid retirement career, like the long play. And so you came to Florida, started keeping your real estate license, started doing stuff here. So where do you see yourself? And, you know, this is the old job interview question. Like, where do you see yourself in five years, son? Like, yeah. what, do you, what do you think about that? I think over the next couple of years, um, I think next year, my wife and I talked about starting to either buy investment properties or start if the market's right, maybe doing a couple flips and getting our feet wet with that. 
Um, I think we're we're done touching our personal property for now. I think we're going to settle here for a couple of years just because we do really enjoy it. Um, but I think that designing a couple other homes and, you know, maybe some some easier flips we'll, we'll start with and go from there. As far as real estate goes, uh, you know, I definitely want to grow as an agent and get into a few other aspects that come along with that. Um, I know some companies are starting to offer services where, you know, if a realtor comes through a home and they see that it needs X, Y, and Z, they'll offer the the money up front to make those changes, and then they'll recoup the recoup that investment on the back end once the home sells, just to get a, a higher sale price. Um, that's stuff that I definitely want to start getting into. It's like a it's like an HGTV thing. <laughs> it is, and yeah. it's actually, I mean, obviously on HGTV is what I guess put it out there, but it's happening locally a lot more than people think. Mm-hmm. Um, and as a realtor, and I'm sure others would agree, there's certain things that are just going to make a deal fall apart. Um, and I think that some of those things, if we had more exposure, you know, to, to market these solutions, maybe those deals wouldn't fall apart. Mm-hmm. I think that, I mean, I'm sure you see it just in, in the mortgage industry is the, the hot topic, especially in Florida has just been these roofs. Um, I think that's been, I would say out of deals that have fallen apart, 90% of them have been because of the roof Mm -hmm. and just unable to come to terms, unable to get insurance on the home, pass a four point. Nobody wants to give up a $20,000 roof. Correct. When they're trying to, when they're making 40, (laughs) when I lose 20, when they're trying to make that work when, and that's a tough situation for a seller because their roof's not leaking. There's nothing wrong with it. It's not. You know, it's it's got life left in it, but then your insurance company's coming along and saying, "Oh well, I'm not going to give you policy because the, the roof's too old." Yeah. And now they have a almost a defective product that they're trying to sell. You know, their their house is black marked there. I think that one of the most common situations, just for ease of the story, is you know, let's say you have a mom and dad pass away, and the home is obviously inherited by the children, and they just want to unload it. Mm-hmm. They don't want to, maybe they don't have the means to, or they just don't want to, you know, make the changes to where the property is marketable for many different loan products. Um, But if you have the availability where you have a realtor that's going to come in or, you know, a company that's a third party that's going to finance the roof up front for you and then require payment on the back end, now you've just opened up your offer pool to how many more people. Mm -hmm. So now you've you know, you're eligible for the first time home buyers, the vets, you know, everybody that before you couldn't even touch that because it's the roof like you're, in such poor condition. It's like it's that's flirting with a with almost like a renovation loan product. Like the renovation loans are tough. Like there's a lot of hoops to jump through with the renovation and yeah. a lot of parties and a lot of stuff that's really outside of your control. Um, but something like that where it's more of a seller orchestrated seller side orchestrated deal than that that could that could work. And now, I, my mind immediately goes to the money. Like, who's how do they, what do you, a, you have to find a roofer that would first outlay that money and pay their people and their materials and all that stuff. And obviously, they're putting a, a work order on the house and a lien and everything. So they're they're going to secure their their stuff. But how do you what's your what's your outlook on that? Like, how does a how do you so get a contractor to come around to that? You're not going to. So that would be something that I would finance um, myself. Mm-hmm. And there's realtors that are doing it now, and there's definitely companies that are doing it. 
So you're basically having an agreement drawn up between the seller and obviously if, if it was me doing it, the realtor, that you're recovering X amount of funds plus a percentage mm-hmm. um, because that home is going to sell for a higher purchase price due to those improvements. Um, but yeah, you're not going to get a builder that's going to, yeah. you know, front the labor and supplies for that. Right. Unless you're the builder. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> could also yeah. happen too. That yeah. could be a thing. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. I mean, there's, you can take it much further. I mean, it, you know, bathroom, kitchen remodels, but oh, I'm just yeah. talking. Right. Like just let's pass a four point. Right. The and, simple things. And make this house, you know, eligible for, for others. I mean, cause when you think about it, I'm sure you've had first time home buyers where, you know, they can qualify for a home, but they're not paying out of pocket for twenty or thirty thousand yeah. dollar roof. Right. It's just not, that, not even a first time home buyer. I mean, just who who else? There's not a lot of people out there who are willing to bring their down payment and their closing costs and their cost of moving and whatever, and then have to buy a new air conditioner or a new AC or whatever, a yeah. electrical panel, like whatever the multi thousand dollar item is, because there's not a whole lot of money left over after. And now you're, you're still moving again. You're still painting. You're still doing like maybe new floor. Like you're still, you got a budget for this other stuff. That's almost like a requirement. And then those big ticket items are. Yeah. When we moved into the house on Citruswood, it needed a roof, air conditioning, pool heater. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was. Cha-ching, cha-ching, cha-ching. The list list was long. (laughs) So, I mean, these people were just trying to squeeze as much time out as possible. Yeah. Um, But obviously when we sold it, the, the buyers obviously saw the value and yeah. all, all these high the ticket items stuff. are done. Yeah. And you know, I've always, it's always been tough to look at appraisals. I'm, I'm trying to, I want to get an appraiser on this show and just grill them about all the questions that we've ever come up with over the years. And, you know, tell me this, why? Well, and I think, you know, appraisers, they have such a, there's such a weight in their opinion and it's, it's supposed to be black and white, but yeah, but it, it's an art. It's not yeah. a science and there's too much weight on that opinion and 10 different appraisers can give you 10 different answers and as black and white and as in the box and, and in or outside of the box that this whole world is in, you know, with real estate and financing and all that stuff. That's the one thing that's like an opinion, you know, it's an yeah. opinion based thing. Like underwriters don't have opinions. You, you do your best to stay away from an opinionated underwriter. You want to see like, what does the doc, what does the guideline say? Does yeah. it fit or not? And it's not like that with appraisals. And I've seen so many times where, you know, a new roof isn't bringing any value at all because they say, well, you know, every, every house has to have a roof, just like every car has to have tires. And on a car lot, if you're buying a car with a thousand miles on the tires versus a car with 60,000 miles on it, not really doing a whole lot to the value of the car. And that's kind of, that's the best explanation I've ever heard about Mm -hmm. it. But it's when you're throwing around these big ticket items, you know, I mean, roofs are, depends on the house, obviously in the roof, but you know, 20,000 easy Easy. for a roof. And if you're getting into the bigger places, I mean, it's a hundred thousand dollars. And how do you justify not having a higher price after you dropped in twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars on a house and you're Correct. still at the same list price as you were at when you got started. I think it almost comes into like you'll have a lot of people think that they're gonna represent themselves instead of having an agent. And that's on the listing side and then on the buying side. Mm-hmm. So, you know, listing people are think they're gonna do it for sell by owner and then the buyers think that they're just gonna go to the listing agent every time, but they don't understand that 
obviously they're going to be loyal to the sellers. Mm-hmm. Like that's where their loyalty lies. Um, so once you start looking at that and then you start taking roofs into consideration, the listing agent, if you're a buyer, is not going to tell you that, hey, you could have a higher insurance premium because the roof is X years old and it's it's past its point that's acceptable for insurance companies and it's obviously all different. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you get your what your insurance estimate's going to be and you're shell-shocked. Yeah. Where if you had a buyer's agent, you would already be prepared saying, strategy, hey, anything this past- have a strategy for that. Strategy. 12, mm-hmm. If it's past 12 or 15 years, be prepared because the insurance company is going to have a hefty bill for yeah, it. Yeah, and they're going to come after you hard and wind up dropping yep. you and putting you in all kinds of all kinds of issues. Yep. So what you're, are you on a team now? I am on a team. Okay. Can you tell me a little bit about that? So the team is, has been great. Um, I feel like with just bouncing ideas off and people looking out for you, it's definitely helped out. Mm-hmm. Um, especially when, I mean, life happens and you need somebody to stand in for you or like I said, just anything that comes up. Yeah. Um, you know, I've had, um, obviously Tara Cabot have been on the team and Cabot's been a great, uh, mentor. Um, I think the thing about Cabot that is the most helpful is he'll give you, he'll answer your question and then also give you the, the real world application in a two minute brief. Mm-hmm. Um, and I definitely appreciate that because it just gives you the perspective on it. Um, he's been a great resource for reaching out, you know, and pretty much just willing to help on any situation that yeah. comes up. And I, I think that's vitally important for any new agent is to be able to have somebody that is trusted and experienced and you know, that they're going to steer you the right way. They're not yeah, going to give you absolutely. bad information or, or ignore you or tell you to figure it out on your own. I think that being a new agent and doing your first couple of deals is like the, the margin for error is obviously higher, but mm-hmm. when you have somebody that's kind of like double checking or saying, Hey, here's some things to think about. Mm-hmm. Um, it helps keep any issues from, from coming up. And I've been fortunate. I haven't had anything that I've had to deal with. Yeah. That's been, you know, anything super difficult Yeah, that couldn't be, that couldn't have been fixed. Couldn't have been fixed. Yeah. yeah. Most everything can be fixed. The fix might be a cancellation or, a, you know, yeah. a, I haven't a even withdrawn. I've been fortunate enough. I haven't even had anything like that. It's just been like small things that, mm-hmm. you know, we're able to work around. Yeah. So it's been good. Well, they say that no deal ever is crystal clear smooth. You know, it's yep. always, there's always something somewhere that's a problem. So like, I get that. We're going to move into headlines. Perfect. And we are going to, I'm going to change it up today. I'm going to ask you, what should I Google? and talk about headlines. Tell me what I should type. Obviously, we try to keep this housing related. Yeah, so. let's let's uh let's Google forecasted housing market for 2023-2024. Florida specifically, if I didn't add that. All right. So, open that one. I'm just open a few articles here because a lot of times they're junk. Hey, look, there's Forbes. They're pretty trustworthy, right? Here's Fortune. So let's try them, see what they have to say. 
So Norada Real Estate Investments. Um, who is this? That's, this is not a news site. This is something. It's like a real estate blog. Let's see what they have to say. Florida housing markets continue to face challenges by rising mortgage rates and the decline in both single-family and townhome condo closed sales. Despite the challenges, it's seen a significant increase in end-of-month inventory levels for both categories. Still short of pre-pandemic levels, but in this article, we're going to take a closer look at trends and see what they might mean for the Florida housing market. So according to a recent report by the Florida Realtors, Single-family home sales in January 23 were down 32.5% compared to January 22, which is to be expected because we, that, you know, that's when rates were still great and thing, the boom was still happening. People were still influxing like crazy, and that was the tail end of that. So we're going to see a huge decline in activity. You know, activity does not equal value, right? So these values are holding and they're even increasing a little bit. We were looking at some articles last week and they were they were up a couple percentage points year over year and that's that's normal, you know. The yep. the 15, 20, 30% a year is totally not normal. That's a fluke and that's a boom and I don't even know that you could call it a bubble just yet because bubbles got to pop, right? And we're not popping at the moment. So, do we know the future? I don't. I don't have a crystal ball. But, you know, we all want it to hold, and it's, I'm okay with it being slow. That's okay with me, you know, 2, yeah, you 3, can't 4, be 5%. Full, you can't be full steam. I mean, you and I both know that if the interest rates went down to 25 or 3%, we would be back to 40000 50000 over asking tomorrow mm-hmm. if that happened. Yeah. And I know that, you know, a year and a half ago, there was a lot of people that we were monitoring the market for, and they're just hesitant to pull the trigger, but they've already outgrown their homes. Um so you have them in your queue and you're actively sending them, you know, homes that are hitting the market. Um, so when you have those people that still need to get into homes because the market took off and they're just kind of sitting there waiting, but that's one buffer. And then the other thing with Florida, it's a secondary home market. So you still have those people that are coming into town, you know, a lot of cash buyers that are, I guess, lower financing percentages. Mm-hmm. Um, in conjunction with those people that are have just outgrown their home simply. I think that it's well, a good buffer. That I had a thought earlier that, you know, I was looking for this data and I would I want to find it. I'm gonna I'll find it somewhere, but um I read somewhere that about thirty three percent of homes owned in Florida are owned outright with no financing on it. So there's this this narrative or this, you know, negative idea that, oh, I can't get a listing because people don't want to give up their two and a half percent interest rate or their three percent interest rate. They don't want to give it up and go and buy a house for seven percent. But there's so many listings out there. There's so many houses out there that don't have a mortgage on them that people still need to move. They want to move. They want to change. They want to upsize, downsize, whatever. And so I think, you know, for realtors, they should, if they're listening, they have that idea just get rid of that idea. I mean, life events happen. Yeah. There, people are going to naturally have to buy and sell homes. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that's more of an excuse than than anything. Yeah. And I think that one of the other things, you know, maybe a couple generations earlier was that mortgages are bad. Mortgages aren't bad. I mean, if, if you have a low interest rate um, and you have your money making a higher percentage, then it, it actually makes sense to have 
a mortgage because your money is making more money than you're actually paying on your mortgage, yeah. if that makes sense. It's like a, and that's an appreciating asset, you know, because you're, Correct. you're, hopefully your uh, appreciation's outpacing your interest rate. But it's, it's, I look at it the same way as a vehicle. You know, if you can get 2% or 1.5% on, on an auto loan, why not? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Why, why dump all that money into, and if you're responsible, obviously if you're responsible and paying it and everything, but you know, why come off of your money? Let it yeah. sit somewhere, put it to work for you, put it in an investment, use it to to do something else instead of dropping fifty, sixty thousand dollars on a vehicle that you own outright with no car payment. That's great. But if you can borrow yeah. it for a few thousand dollars over the life of the loan, there's why not? there's very wealthy people that carry mortgages. Oh yeah. And I feel like that's what is Absolutely. a misunderstanding is mm-hmm. you know, like a sign of wealth is having your house paid off. It's like that's that's not a sign of wealth. I yeah. mean that's I mean, congratulations I think it depends on, on not owing anything. Depends but. on your point in life too. Correct. You know, if if you're if you're done and you don't want any responsibilities, you don't want to make it tough for anybody that you're leaving things to, sure. Right? Yeah. But why not use that money for something else? Yeah, I'm not saying, you know, let's be financially responsible and not yeah. pay our mortgage, no, but totally. let's use the the liquid assets that we have mm-hmm. I guess more intelligently than just completely trying to pay off a house if yeah. you can I guess turn those funds over to a yeah. financial advising team that's going to well, manage that's the money well. Leverage, you know, that's all. That's yeah. exactly what leverage is. So this article goes on to talk about the real estate market in Florida seen unprecedented price rises during the last few years as a result of lack of supply and high demand. Um, they talk about over the last decade, Florida's real estate has risen 282 percent, which equates to an annual home appreciation of 6.14 percent. Six is a very palatable number. You know, mm-hmm. that's something that you can bank on and think about and be reality. You know, it's far cry from 30%, but 6% is healthy, um, according to data collected by Neighborhood Scout. Florida has been one of the finest long-term real estate investments in the United States over the past decade. So what's it say about, here's Tampa, within Tampa, has one of the most overpriced housing markets in the nation, according to new research from Florida Atlantic University. I read this study last week, and or maybe two weeks ago, and I think they were saying here um, the way that they studied, the way their study came out is they said that according to trends, our I'm thinking back to this report because I don't, it's not exactly in front of me, but they said that according to trends, the housing data in Tampa says that our median house price should be like 260, and currently it's like four. 15 or something like that. Yep. And I think it was Elena that was here. And I was like, when's the last time you saw a median sales price of 250 in the Tampa area? You know, that's, you can't find it. And it's very, they're very tired to find. And my heart goes out to these people that are trying to buy their house for the first time because it's tough. It really is. We can't ignore that fact that it's You can't get a townhome right now. That's, I mean, in, I guess updated for what your average person considers for under 250 right now. Right. Like you're, you're seeing the townhomes, you know, at 300 mm-hmm. so. and you gotta, you've got to get pretty far out there in the outskirts. You have to and, get to the outskirts and start see those finding prices. those deals. But and I mean, if you're going to be in the city, forget about it. But I guess the closest thing we can compare to is California, right? Cause California has been like this for decades 20 years, 30, yeah. 40 years of super overvalued. You know, I, overvalued is not the right word because it's 
it is what it is. The There's people standing the in market's line to pay paying it. for it. Yeah. So it's an overvalued. It's definitely not the right word, but it's uh, yeah, it's tough. Um, what else do we have here? So the Tampa metro area is projected to see no growth in home values by March 31st, 23, which just happened. Uh, but this is expected to change by March by May 31st, 23, with a projected decrease of 0.3%. By February, by the end of month on February 24, home values are expected to increase by 2.3%. So those are small numbers, but both of those numbers are flat to me. Like 2% here, 3% here, oh, that's pretty flat. That's yeah. a pretty stable incline or decline. So I would be okay with that. You know, I just everyone thinks there's going to be a big like bubble that bursts. And I, I think it's just going to continue to stay flat. Well, I try to stay, I try to stay as an, as a, as an impartial observer on that sometimes. Cause obviously as a, as a real estate agent or an industry professional, we are here to sell people houses and help them to homeownership, upgrade, downgrade, everywhere in between. So I always try to take an objective approach on that and say, you know, it's my job to say that it's not going to crash, you know, but I did live through the 08 crash and I was in this business all the way from 2000 on. So Mm -hmm. I saw it and I lived through it. And I've always said, I've said it a thousand times that if anything were to happen again, it's not going to be the same set of circumstances that happened the first time. And I think that the generations who are talking about those things, um, which really is anybody who was alive during that period of time and old enough to understand what happened, that just feels like a natural progression. Like, though this is supposed to happen because it happened, you know, in 2008, so it's going to happen again. But when you look at historical charts and you look at, you know, the market in the past, that really was a once-in-a-lifetime meltdown. Yeah. You know, and then you go back to the tech, the tech meltdown, the tech bubble, in the 90s. And then you got the whole, excuse me, the whole savings and loan thing that was before that and Enron and like all these big mega financial disasters. But everybody's houses have typically been protected and okay, other than 08 when the bottom fell out and every other person had a foreclosure or a short sale on their credit. Yeah, and I think time. one of the things that's going to happen is you're, let's say there is a, like a hard decline, you're going to start to see it in other markets around the country before you actually see it or feel it in Florida. So mm-hmm. you're going to get a warning of the wave, essentially. Um, and I the population is increasing as much as it is down here. And being a secondary home market, you're going to start to see it in the Northeast where you're starting to see a lot of evacuations to other areas. Um, you're going to get a a testing of it there first. I've seen some um, some mortgage forecasts coming out, and they're optimistic. Um, do they also have a crystal ball? <laughs> no, yeah, <nobody laughs> they don't. Nobody saw those two percent rates coming when it happened, but nobody even nobody had ever seen COVID happening either. So, who are, who are we to, to judge? Um, but some of these articles that I've seen have have put us back in the low to mid fours within the next twelve months. So if that can hold, that would be awesome. Yeah. You know, just to loosen the um, 
loosen the, the, the necktie, you know, around the chokehold that they have on people because it's tough, you know, but it is what it is. You can always refinance. Yes. You know, it's that the big saying that has been going around for the last few months is, you know, uh, date the rate and marry the house. You know, the, the rate's temporary, but the house is forever. So that's sound advice, you know. Um, you tell and, me, like, think about it. If if rates do start to come back down again, you see the application start immediately. Mm-hmm, yeah. So then what happens? The competition starts yep, immediately. It goes over again. So the house that you thought you were going to get because you were looking at the market today in three months, if you see a decent drop, you're you're not even in the competition mm-hmm. for that. Yep, you're, you're settling for, I'm sure, a nice house still, but nothing what you had envisioned, mm-hmm. you know. I also, another point in this is, you know, okay, you get a 7% interest rate and you get whatever your payment's going to be. If they fall, you refinance. What if they keep going up? <laughs> what yeah. if they go to 12? Mm-hmm. You're going to be happy that you have a 7 at that time. Yeah. And it's just a, there's, it's the same as a stock market. You can't try to time the market. You can't try to, you know, manipulate it because it doesn't, doesn't work like that. You know, you just, especially with housing, I mean, stocks are one thing because you can get in and out so fast, but when you're uprooting your family and selling a house and buying a house, those are long arcing decisions, you know, 30 days at least, probably even more than that to, to decide what you're getting into. Florida's one of those places where I just, you want to have skin in the game. You don't want to be on the outside renting, trying to get your hand in there. I mean, look what happened in, in 2020. I mean, you gained like massive double digit percentage gains on your home, mm-hmm. you know, just because of a pandemic that hit. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it, if you didn't have a home and you were on the outside renting at that point, I mean, you lost out on a massive amount of money. I mean, think about for your average household, how long it takes to save, we'll say 80, a hundred, $120,000. Yeah. And just by not owning a home because of fear of, interest rates or you just don't think it's the right time, you're six months out. I mean, you just lost out massively. Mm-hmm. So, And we can't promise that that's going to happen again, you know, because those, those 20%, 20, 30% appreciation years are, are rare and they're a gift when they happen. But yeah. that, that makes me think about, you know, what, what are we going to do about Gen Z? How are we going to help those guys? Because all of them are salty about employment, and income and housing prices and rent prices. Yep. What what are we, what's going to happen there? What what are you? What generation are you? Are you millennial? Yeah, yeah. I'm an elder millennial. I'm one <laughs> of the first. I'm 81. Okay, so, I'm 89. Okay, so you're firmly planted. Yeah. I don't know when it cuts off. Um, I think just a few years after 89, and then yeah. it switches. Sometimes in the 90s. Yeah. So I you know I I get feedback a lot from videos and content and stuff that we put out there and. I feel bad for him. You know, I don't, I, it's like, yeah, well, I, cause we do a lot of things like, you know, how much do you need to earn to purchase a $400,000 house? And we'll show you the breakdown. And that's a pretty substantial income. You know, it's not as bad when you got two people. Correct. But that's more traditional, two people working together yeah. to buy a house and implant roots and, and, you know, take that on. So, that's a question I've been asking myself is what do we do with those guys? You know, cause they're here, like they're of age and they're starting their earning years and they're starting to get into the markets and they're, they're bitter about a lot of it. But I feel like there's no information around it. Like 
nobody, people complain about it, um, but they don't seek out answers or, you know, take any of the next steps. Like, for example, there's countless people that I've spoke with that, I mean, they'll talk about, you know, a purchase price or, you know, I just don't think that I can do that yet. It's like, well, have you talked to a lender and find out what, you know, what your debt to income is or Strategy, what your credit score yeah. needs to be at. Some and goals need to be in the next five years, two years to, to get here. And that's one of the things is like you only hear from people two weeks before they're ready to pull the trigger or their dream house just hit the market yesterday. And what yeah. do I need to do? Which yeah. all those situations you're more than willing to help somebody. Mm-hmm. Um, but the amount of stress that that they're instantly put under at that time is yeah. can easily be avoided just by making contact with, you know, a friend that's a realtor, a mortgage lender and having a strategy and a checklist of things that they need to get done mm-hmm. before the actual process begins. Yeah. I mean, I feel like from a buying standpoint and even a listing standpoint, I mean, if you were able to talk to these people and give them, you know, advice six months out, that would be more than beneficial, you know, for what they need to be doing, maybe changes they can make to the house to make it more appealing. Um, if that's something that they're interested in doing, and then also gives buyers the perspective of what can I afford and what are my expectations. Mm-hmm. Um, and then from a from a lending standpoint, if you have, you know, let's say somebody a couple years out of college, they got themselves in credit card debt, you can walk them through what changes need to be made in order for them to afford, you know, X purchase price. Yeah. And so. the the old advice holds true. I remember when I when I turned 18, 19, whatever. I heard from multiple people, stay away from the credit cards. Don't yep. get a credit card. Just stay away. You don't need one. Don't get one. And, of course, at that time, nobody could, you can't tell me nothing, you know, at <laughs> that age. So here comes the platinum card. You know, here comes the $8,000 balance and a bunch of junk that never amounted to anything that I'm paying interest on. And so how, many, how many people do you, would you say that you get where you're – basically counseling them on credit repairs before you can get them to a point where they're ready to buy. If I was to put a percentage on it, maybe, um, maybe 20%, 20% of the, of the people who kind of come through, um, you're where you're counseling them saying X, Y, and Z needs to happen with your credit in mm-hmm. order for you to come back. And yeah. Buy Cause if, if we get something in, then we can't give them an approval. We'll give them a solution to say, pay this off, pay this off, pay this off. This is going to open you up for this. And your $100,000 approval is going to jump to $350,000 because you freed up all of this, you know, overhead. That How you many people spend. walk through the door thinking they can afford, you know, <coughs> excuse me, a purchase price that was something that they thought affordable. And then you look at their finances and it's just not even doable. A smaller percentage. Okay. It, it's not that great. Um, I've got a colleague and, California that he he must that seems like all he does is deal with the people who you know make seventy thousand dollars a year and they want to go buy a one point four million dollar house in yeah. Palo Alto or something like that and it's like and he just hits them with the numbers you know like this we is we can a, thank HGTV for that <laughs> yeah yeah and they're just in a, on, a, on another planet you know but thankfully we don't really see too much of that you know that's that's not a a huge a huge part of it and. I've always found that, and I don't even, you know, I feel kind of feel bad saying this, but I surely shouldn't. I mean, whatever. It's the people who have habitual behavioral credit issues, no amount of credit repair is going to fix what they've fixed their behavior, 
You know, they might fix a mistake or fix a mishap, something like that. But in my experience, and I'm, I'm sure that other people agree, that you come to us with a 480 credit score, it's not a mishap that it got to that point, right? You didn't miss a payment or you didn't misreport a payment or, or forget to pay off a credit card or something like that. It's a habitual offender yep. over and over and over and over and over. And credit repair is, there's a lot to it. You know, it's not just letter writing and get this taken off my report. It's not that simple. And yep. you, the credit repair people don't have magic wands that they just fix stuff with. So usually money is the one that solves it. You know, I saw a meme. I want to find it again. It said, uh, credit repair tip, pay them people. <laughs> you know, that's yep. all there is to it. Pay them and wait. And I find that, you know, we're more than happy to always consult people and say, this is what, this is your situation. This is what you need to do. And this is how you get out of this problem. But in order to get there, you got to, if there's a game, you got to play the game. You know, mm-hmm. you got to pay it on time. You got to keep your credit credit score right. You got to keep your balances down. You got to take care of it, pay things when they're supposed to be. Don't let things slip through and you'll be okay. The mm-hmm. best example I think I can give is, you know, like when you walk into a furniture store and everyone's crowding the door, like, mm-hmm. oh, can I help you? Can I help you? Yep. I feel like a lot of people out there that are looking for homes are afraid to approach realtors because they feel like they're going to get that. Well, you yeah. know, what can I help you? Yeah, with type. It. Right. Exactly. It's like, for me, like the most important thing is obviously I want somebody to have a good experience and two is my reputation. Mm-hmm. So the last thing that I'm going to do is crowd somebody or try and sell them a house they don't need. Yeah. Um, it's more so like just being there to educate them on what the market looks like, the homes that they're looking for in specific areas. And if I could get them set up on a search four months out and they can start to manage their own expectations, I think that it would do them, you know, far more good. And that's not something like, Oh, I don't want to waste your time. Well, you're not wasting my time. These are automatic searches that take me, you know, five minutes to set up. Right. Um, and text me or call me with any questions that you have. Now, how bad would you feel if you, you know, if, if you're the type of realtor who fleeces somebody into something, you know, minimizes problems, uh, forces them to sign, talks them into staying when they're having second thoughts. And, you know, that's, you got to feel like a slime ball. <coughs> after, after I that. just won't do it. I, I mean, know. I just blatantly tell people I don't need the sale. Yeah. I mean, you know, I want, your reputation is more important to Correct. you than you don't want somebody being like, you oh, me and Ryan made me buy that house. I wish I would have never called him because now we're stuck in this place. Yep. You know, you, you have to be an advocate. And I've I had find multiple. myself actually pointing out all of the issues just to be as transparent as possible mm-hmm. because I just don't want to hear in two yeah. months that somebody had, you know, a house where they thought everything was good and it wasn't or just a bad experience in general. I warn people on all kinds of stuff all the time, just off of personal experience. Like, am I required to tell them these things? Am I, does the, do the compliance gods make me disclose this and say this? No, they don't, but I'm the same. Like I want you to know about what a tax reassessment is going to do to your tax bill after you build this house or after you buy this house that somebody owned for the last 30 years and you inherit their $400 tax bill and you yeah. bought the house for three fifty, and now your taxes jumped to $4,500 a year, your payment's going to swing on that. Yeah. And we're not, you know, they don't, they don't, they're not paying that money now. They're paying it 18 months or whenever it all kicks in and filters down to their payment. So yeah. 
I want people to understand that. And, um, you know, I think I've had multiple agents here on this podcast tell me the same thing. You know, I look for the deficiencies as a homeowner. I'll go and I'll look for the things that would bother me there that I know that are going to be expensive to fix and quality issues and things like that, because I want, you know, you want your clients to have a positive experience and to be happy for years to come. Yeah. So it's also hard. I mean, like my expectations of walking in a house, I, I know I have high expectations. Um, but it's like some things, you know, you have to separate yourself and be like some, somebody might enjoy that or like that feature about the house. And I just try and limit it to, you know, structural and functional mm-hmm. call outs that, yeah. you know, are going to potentially, like you said, cost them money in the long yeah, term. Exactly. Yeah. I think, that, do you have any, um, I always try to get advice from the agents that join me here because I want to know, you know, what would you tell someone maybe in your situation that, that you're, you're a starting out situation when you were younger, you know, somebody looking to jump in, stop renting, move away from home. What would you what kind of advice would you give a person like that coming out of college, out of trade school, out of high school with a job, whatever, planting their feet, trying to trying to get in? in Florida where we are now, what kind of, what do you tell those people? I would say priority one would just be, you have to, you have to get into a home. I mean, the real estate here like has the potential to grow like we've seen it over recent years and it's only going to grow more. I mean, the market's not going to stay down forever. Um, I feel like that's the most important thing is just staying laser focused on your finances. And I know renting is expensive. So the sooner that you can get out of there and start to actually you know, accumulate some equity in the home is going to be the most beneficial. Um, and obviously, you know, just putting yourselves in the right situation, the right jobs, um, just being financially responsible, honestly. Yeah. I mean, I think in this day and age, it's easy to just constantly buy and spend. Mm -hmm. Um, if you're making the money, then you can do that. Um, but just making sure that you're you have a home at the end of the day before you start making all of these other purchases. Yeah. That, that advice echoes others that have, again, that have been here, you know, it's financial picture, financial health. And yes, you don't have a million dollar stock portfolio, but you also, maybe you don't have $4,000 a month in credit card debt either. Yeah. You know, those are, those are all very big, uh, big needle movers when it comes to. I mean, I feel like when you look at big picture, you, you look at somebody's like overall financial picture, somebody that maybe bought a home earlier in their life are maybe in a better financial situation than if you're coming in, you know, later after renting for multiple years, mm-hmm. um, you just, you're just able to flip the equity. You know what I mean? I mean, not everybody wants to move like I have every three years, right. but I mean, there's, there's money to be made in home ownership. It there's gives this. you so much opportunity, so many options. Like if you, Maybe you bought a starter home and maybe you paid it off. Who knows? Maybe you gained 200000 in equity and maybe mm-hmm. you don't want to um, move somewhere, but maybe you want to use that money to maybe you want to sell it and go live in a camper somewhere, you know, yeah. but if you hadn't owned that house, then you wouldn't have that money. Correct. Same, same strategy. Yeah. All right. And I feel like the other part of it is, like it doesn't have to be the HGTV house. You you just need to get a house, maintain it, make some improvements, and 
you know, just start to grow mm -hmm. because nothing's going to be, you know, a 5,000 square foot home, Yeah, you know, with the sprawling waterfront dock. And it's just, it's unrealistic. I'm, you have to start somewhere. I'm of the opinion that 5,000, 6,000 square foot homes are not for everyone just because of the amount of maintenance. They're not and, for a lot of people. And cleaning and everything that you have to do to put into a place like that. It's just, it's not even worth it, you know, unless you've got right. so much money where you've got a staff and you've got services to take care of everything. Hey, great. You know, more power to you. But 1,500 square feet is absolutely doable for a family. You know, mm -hmm. three bedroom, four bedroom house, two bathroom, absolutely doable. You had no problems in something like that. That's perfect. Um, you got anything that you would tell to new deputies? young deputies on the force that are starting out, you know? I mean, I know what I did, so I, I guess I can talk about that. Um, and I guess my, my question really relates more to um, almost a repeat of the question I just asked you, you know, not, not necessarily in their law enforcement career, but they're, how do they get ahead financially? Um, some of them have already figured it out and some of them haven't. Mm -hmm. um, the ones that have figured it out are, financially responsible. They're working off duty that, you know, they're able to work. Those are duties outside of their patrol assignments or whatever function that they work at the sheriff's office that they can make additional income. Because if you're working off duty, you're not spending money. Mm -hmm. If you're not working off duty, you're out on the weekend spending everything. Um, I know that as I was buying homes initially, before I started doing real estate, I was working off duty to supplement the income that I was making. So that definitely helped. Yeah. I think it's a, there's a, a little bit of a stigma that follows around some law enforcement professionals that, and, and first responders in general, firefighters, um, I've seen it firsthand and I've heard about it before, but a lot of them, they get a good job, you know, well paid, they get overtime, whatever. And then all of that turns into toys, you know, and there's, side-by-sides and ATVs and jet skis and boats and boat trailers and toy haulers and, you know, and then their debts just go to the ceiling and now they are on a treadmill hamster wheel and they're completely trapped and if they make $1 less a month, they're going to implode. Yeah, then the deck falls. Mm -hmm. uh, I think there it's there's two different spectrums and then there's, a, there's less people in the middle. I feel like you, mm -hmm. ha you do have a lot of people that are completely spending everything. Yeah. And then you have some that are extremely, extremely conservative, almost to a fault. Um, it's tough to, I guess, just find the middle ground yeah. and just make smart decisions. Right. Um, I don't know if it's, I mean, obviously I'm exposed to, to deputies frequently, so I don't know if outsiders would see it the same. But, yeah, there's definitely... There's a lot of spending. Mm -hmm. It's, uh, I mean, I don't know if you would call from where I'm seeing it as an outsider because I'm looking straight into their situations, yeah, you know, correct. but we've, correct. I've seen it um, many times, many, many times over the years. And in the industry, it's even kind of like a, it's like a thing that follows that profession. You know, it's like, oh, well, I can tell you what this file is going to look like before we deputies open it up. Deputies rarely drive shitty cars. Mm -hmm. So that's, yep. I'm sure you've seen that yep. once you once you dig in, um, but it goes up from there. Mm -hmm. It's just, you start to look at 
what spouses do for work and you know how how income is supplemented. So. Yeah. This thing here has been so much fun. <laughs> I can put any sound or music or anything on here and it's just been crazy how awesome it is. All right, so we are moving into trivia. We're calling this Brain Busters and this is uh the third installment and our record holder is actually they're tied and four out of five is our record holder so the bar is not all the way at the top but we're gonna start now the categories this is kind of a jeopardy themed so we've got five categories but we're only going to go through five questions total so you can do one of each you can do one and five and all anywhere in between all right so first category is going to be general knowledge are you smarter than a fifth grader maybe a 12th grader we don't know hopefully let's find out Real estate test questions plucked straight from the Florida real estate salesperson 63-hour study guide test prep. Okay. All right. Florida facts, Florida history, geography, news, and politics. Mortgage matters, mortgage terms, products, and processes, and then superheroes. And Marvel and DC only, and it has the potential to go deep because my son wrote those and he's a marvelous i know nothing so we are going to steer clear of the superheroes all right let's go to let's do some florida general florida knowledge florida facts uh, and then we'll do uh some test questions okay well we'll just go one at a time we'll start out with you think uh, we can chalk this up for my continuing ad or what you know i've taught continuing in the past if we get it if we get it approved through the state i'm happy to i've got a timestamp on here and everything so All right, so the first question in this category is, what is the official Florida State bird? Oh, my God, I just saw this, too. (laughs) I don't know. Hmm? You want to take a guess? No, I don't even have a guess. It's probably going to be more embarrassing. Okay. You get the the wrong answer. Yeah. So it's a mockingbird. (coughs) Okay. And I think that's a weird one. I would think it may be like the mockingbirds are kind of annoying. They're loud. They're not that pretty. You know, I think maybe a blue jay or a like maybe a flamingo or something would be a cool Florida bird. But yeah. whatever. I didn't make that. All right. So we've got uh, I can repeat the categories if you'd like. Or, no, that's OK. Um, huh? Let's do a test question. Test question. OK. Now, I will tell you that I didn't I tried not to go like super obscure with some of these crazy ones. So I tried to stay in the middle. All right. So, and this is multiple choice too. Okay. So that's a plus. And if you need me to repeat the choices, I'll be happy to. So number one, what requirement does not apply regarding dwellings built prior to 1978? So what does not apply? First one, A, sellers and lessors must disclose the presence of known lead-based paint in all residential dwellings. B, sales contracts and leases must include specific lead-based paint warning and disclosures. C, buyers and tenants must acknowledge that they have received the warning and disclosure. Or D, buyers must have the property inspected for lead-based, lead-based paint. Just repeat the question. Don't You don't have to repeat the answers. Now, what requirement does not apply Regarding the dwellings built prior to 1978. What was the what was D? Buyers must have the property inspected for lead-based paint. That's that one because you have to disclose it. Um, 
that a right answer? That's correct. Okay. I'm just making, that's I don't want to have to make you repeat A, B, and C. This one. That's the yeah. wrong answer. Okay. Good. That's the right answer. Yeah. So you're good. That, yeah. There you go. That's right. Yeah. They don't have to have it inspected. It's just um, making sure it's disclosed. Everything disclosed. Yeah. You see properties often before 1978? Surprisingly not. Yeah. Um, every once in a while, but it seems like majority of them are going to be like 1990 and newer. Mm-hmm. Well, in the suburbs, absolutely. Yeah. But, you know, you get over into you know, the beaches and oh, yeah. in the waterfronts and the, you know, the old parts of Tampa. Absolutely. You start to see the 60s, 70s. Yeah, all yeah. over the place out there. All right. Next category. Same category, next category. What do you think? We'll do the same category. Okay. Next real, t- real estate question. All right. This is a great question. I didn't even put this together for you, but this is this is pulling from both your worlds. Practicing real estate without a license is a a first degree felony, b third degree felony, c first degree misdemeanor, d second degree misdemeanor. Oh, there's two of them that are there's one that's a third degree felony and one that's a first degree misdemeanor. And there's two different things that I remember from the mm. book. This one's general practicing real estate. So I don't know what, I don't know. Is it a first degree misdemeanor? It's, mm, it's gotta be the third degree felony. It's the felony. We're yeah. going to count that one. That works. Yeah. That's there's two, there's two different questions that I remember frequently. Yeah. That we're going back and forth between the, the third degree felony. And first this degree is not summer. part of the game, but do you know how many square feet in an acre? Not offhand. Yeah, yeah. That's one thing that stuck with me out of my what real estate. 43,560. Now that you say that, because <laughs> you know when you're photographing the test book before you, uh-huh. before you go in there yep. to take your test? Yeah. That's crazy. The that's, comes it's back. crazy what sticks with you on yep. things like that. Th- that one and riparian rights. You know what riparian rights? It's the water. Water, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and that's all I remembered. It's just like the water. Like, yeah. that's what it means. <laughs> <laughs> I said last time when somebody missed a real estate question, I said, you know, if anybody's listening to this, if you've ever taken a state license before, then you know that they just put you through the ringer for no reason. Yeah. And then when you're done, it doesn't matter that it's not all in your head because it's all everywhere else. Yeah. You know, you just go, you know where to find it. All right. Uh, we got two more questions. Same category or new category? Mm, Let's go back to Florida. Florida facts. You're brave on these Florida facts. I know. Only being here for a a little bit of time. I wasn't wasn't expecting that. We'll use it as a learning experience. Okay. All right. Uh, Now, I think this one's easy, but I'm a native. Okay. Um, What is the largest lake in Florida? Is it Okeechobee? It is. All right. Yeah. And you can't miss it on the map. You know, it's yeah, right I, there in the middle. I was getting a little nervous there, but yeah, no, you're I good. Feel better now. And you're into fishing, aren't you? I'm not. You're not. Cabot no, is. Cabot's into fishing. Yeah. Um, my wife and I, when we're out on the boat, it's recreational. Okay. And drinking and mm-hmm. sandbarring. Yeah, that's I'm, a thing. I'm Florida born and raised, and for some reason, the boat gene missed me. I don't know. I've just never had, never been. Never I think we've acquired it. it in the last two and a half years. Yeah. Um, it's fun. Cabot like gave it. us a great head start to what marina and what areas to go. And yeah. we've kind of jumped off and fully started exploring out there. That's so cool. it's been an awesome time. All right. Final question. New okay. category, same category. 
Let's do General Florida again. General Florida. All right. So this one, uh, angering many key lime pie lovers, what treat became Florida's official state dessert in March of 2022 through an act signed by Ronnie D? <laughs> I have no idea. I'll be happy to give you a context clue. All right, I'll take it. What happens around our area? Uh, is it strawberry shortcake? It's strawberry shortcake. I was gonna go there, but you I just like it. I felt like it was a Plant City thing, so <laughs> I just I didn't put it out there. No, he was there. I, I think I saw a news article about it last year. He was there, and like, do you know they had record populations this year at the strawberry festival? Yeah. It was it was wild. Yep. Like lines for way longer than you wanted to wait. I can tell you that. Mm -hmm. That's their big money maker, you yeah, know, for the year. It's huge. That's how they make or break their year is with that. And uh, I've got a love-hate relationship with Plant City. I've lived there the majority of my life. I've been in Brandon, Tampa, lived out of state for a year, and uh, mostly Plant City. Went I love school, the pride that, that people have that live out there. Yeah. It's just. The thing I don't like about it, I mean, there's a lot of things I don't like, but one of the things is the that whole side of town the festival mm -hmm. it's just depressed like it's just the fest 10 days a year <laughs> they use all that 10 10 days a year they thrive uh, yeah and the rest of the time it's just fences and parking lots yep. and i think that they've I, I don't like that that's where it is yep. you know the fairgrounds is one thing because the fairgrounds is like outskirts between things like off the interstate you know kind of like kind of like that but this one is like right here in the middle of the city and I just, I've never, never loved that. And they just keep expanding. You know, they bought the church that's there and they just keep pushing and it keeps getting bigger and bigger. Personally, it's my little beef with that, yep. but whatever. All right. So uh, we are nearing the end of our interview here. And um, I wanted to say I really appreciated you coming on and talking and sharing. And do you have anything else you want to get into? I think we covered everything. Okay. Uh, I think just a, just a closing. Okay. Um, I think. The biggest message, I guess, for me is, you know, my close friends would obviously know this. Um, the real estate part is my passion. Mm -hmm. So I feel like when it comes time to, you know, people reaching out with questions and making it like a formal, I'm hiring a realtor, like that's not the case. Yeah. So it really just, is a lifestyle. You it know, is. It's like, like it, it follows you home. It, it's you can do it on a weekend. You can do it on a Sunday. You can do it on a Monday morning. It doesn't matter. Like when I leave here, I'm going home to inspect a home improvement project that somebody was working on, you know, today. So this is something that I live and breathe yeah. every day. The questions are um, just what you're already thinking about anyway. <laughs> correct. Like somebody, most of the time when somebody texts me or calls me, I'm already at my computer anyway. Mm -hmm. um, and I feel like it's almost embarrassing. Like when I get phone calls or text messages, like, hey, can you check into this? And well, I'm actually at my computer. I got it right here. Yeah. Stand by. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, I just would hope that somebody would feel comfortable, you know, social media followers or friends that maybe I haven't talked to in a while in Florida or, you know, even back home in Buffalo, if they have any questions just to reach out. Mm -hmm. um, like I said, I, I love getting people started earlier in the process than later. It just is such an advantage for them, you know, and me to, you know, to get background on them and really help them. So you seem like the type of guy that would answer a question, provide some value and sit back. You know, not necessarily get on and text them every day and say, hey, are you ready to buy your house yet? You yeah, ready to buy your that's, house? that's not me. Call I, them 15 times a week. Because I hate that approach. Yeah. Um, 
But if somebody's obviously ready to pull the trigger quickly, like obviously you have to move swiftly mm-hmm. and yeah. you know, I'm a hundred percent all in to get it done. Yeah. So. Great. I appreciate you having me on. It's been yeah. great. I love the setup. Yeah. Um, it's, it's something I'm, you know, I'm, it's in its infancy. This is number five that we're yeah. in now. So I'm trying to, you know, I think we've got a pretty good format. We've had some really good conversations um, over this time in, not everybody's going to have the appetite for a extended long form type discussion, yep. but I feel like the people that do, that's awesome. You know, who else, mm. who else gets to like listen to their friend or coworker or cousin or whatever, you know, and people put it on. I myself personally, I put on podcasts at night and I sleep. They, uh, some put me to sleep. I, I put on news. I'll put on whatever people talking for whatever reason. It gets me. I've started again. My wife listens to them all the time on her commute home from work. And mm -hmm. I think it's kind of rubbed off a little bit. Yeah. Well, there's just so much, there's so much information and opinions in, you know, I try to stay very impartial on these whole, on these things. It's like my whole goal of this is I don't want, this is not about me. This is not about my business. This is not about anything I do. You know, I haven't mentioned anything about that other than the fact that I'm in the industry and I want this to be more of a, community-based thing to where you have a platform and you have enough content to put out for the next month on social media and marketing and whatever, you know, and I think every agent and every guest on the, on the show is going to take that and react to it in their own way. You know, some people are, you know, not going to want to share anything about it and other people are going to put it out and, blast out to all platforms. Um, you know, another, another thing that I talk about is helping you. If you wanted to deliver a message to anyone right now, if you wanted to make a short intro for whoever, you know, a database mailer, you know, email newsletter, like whatever you got going on, everybody's different with how they market themselves, but this is a great opportunity for it. You know, you can take excerpts out of things like this and you can take, you know, you can deliver points, you can come on to talk about things. And I haven't had to invite anyone to this show yet because yeah. people have been like, I want to, I want to go on there. I yeah. want to do that because hopefully the guest or whoever it's going to be sees the value of no, there's 100% value being out there it. and then having all the different clips and content and shorts and reels and stuff you can pull and the audio and just the, I think it's a great way to spread. There's a surplus of awkward selfie videos as you're walking into a home, but mm-hmm. actually having, you know, good video, good context. Yeah. I think that's a real thing. And I've thought about maybe, you know, my, my target audience in this is going to be, or is real estate agents, industry people. And when I say agents, I really, I really mean industry people, insurance, you know, home inspectors, contractors, who's involved in the housing world. Mm -hmm. You know, I've got a document that we refer to sometimes and I've got every person that touches a transaction in a real estate deal and people don't get it. You know, they think when they're buying a house, Ryan's going to show me the house, Ryan's going to sell me the house. But what about this army of people who were involved to get it done? So that's, that's my audience. And then my other audience is people either interested in Florida or people that live here and are looking to make a move or whatever. You know, so they always say that if you're trying to reach everyone, you're not going to reach anyone. You have to like niche it down to a certain population. And that's my goal. That's what I'm trying to do. So 
I'm going to keep at it. I'm here doing it. So, well, thanks again for having me. I appreciate yeah. it. And hopefully I can get back on at some point and cover some more so. topics. I'm totally up for it. Yeah. Thanks for coming and uh, enjoy the rest of your weekend. Will do. All right. Awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah. You're welcome. I, I enjoy this because, you know, something that something that I've always had to deal with is